Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update. It's answers to the top 10 questions advisors ask when considering change and a conversation with Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. As you can imagine, advisors have a ton of questions when considering changing firms or models, and they should, because the reality is that no decision this big should be made without digging deep and looking closely at how your goals align with that of either your current firm or another firm or model you might be thinking about. So, we thought it important to tackle those questions we hear most frequently from advisors, and in turn, hoping to dispel some of the myths and misperceptions that often stop advisors from realizing their true potential. I've asked Lewis to join me on the show today, as some of these are really in his wheelhouse. So let's jump to it. Lewis, I'm so glad you're here. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. So, all right, let's kick it off with question number one, and I'll take that one. So the first question is, what are the right questions to ask myself to determine if a move is warranted? So the truth of the matter is, there are many questions that advisors need to ask themselves, and it's an inside job. But we've put together actually a self-assessment that is a list of 20 questions that we suggest advisors ask themselves all or in part to help them to get clarity. In general, the questions are things like, so what's the status quo like? How well does it serve you? How able are you to grow your business and serve your clients without limitation? Do you feel like you're well compensated? How much control do you feel that you have? Secondly, to what extent do those limitations impact you? There are minor annoyances, and then there's DEFCON 3, and only you can decide what that is. The second part of it is about goals. What do you want to be when you grow up? What are the short-term and mid-term goals? And do you see yourself fulfilling those goals, staying where you are? Can those goals be achieved by the status quo? Then it's a whole bunch of questions about, so what does ideal look like? You know, I think the caveat is there is no perfection anywhere in the status quo or elsewhere, but you can aim for perfection. So what does it look like? What would it take to be better or better enough? Do you want to be independent? Do you have entrepreneurial DNA? What version of independence would you want to be? Meaning how much support would you need? How important is transition money? How much is enough? Is it more about the long term? And if so, what does that look like? What does your legacy look like? What are your succession plans? How long is your runway? Lots of questions. Those questions in and of itself could be a whole episode. If anybody wants a copy of that self-assessment, we're certainly happy to provide it, so please reach out. 
But that's a good segue, I think, to question number two, which I'm going to ask of you, Lewis. And the question is, I'm interested in changing firms, but I'd leave behind substantial unvested deferred comp or I have time left on an EFL, an employee forgivable loan or a note. How should I think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. And deferred comp is always going to be there if you're a wirehouse advisor. And even if there's a relatively de minimis amount of unvested deferred comp um, relative to an advisor's production, it's still hard-earned money. And at a principle, most advisors are not going to be comfortable just, just walking away since the unvested portion is forfeited upon leaving a firm. So advisors can look at a couple of different strategies to replace that deferred comp. The, I'd say the, the cleanest or easiest is that certain wirehouses will reimburse an advisor all or a portion of their unvested deferred comp as part of the deal structure. And that's above and beyond the normal uh, forgivable loan terms. Secondly, some advisors might look at a recruitment deal in general as a replacement for deferred comp. Since not all firms would reimburse for it, for example, the, the regional firms like a Raymond James or an RBC or a Stiefel, since they don't really have deferred comp as part of their cultures, they're not going to reimburse an advisor for deferred, but they do have very competitive recruitment deals. And then finally, if someone's looking at going independent, depending upon how much deferred they have, that might stop them in their tracks because it's just too big of a hurdle to overcome. But for those that are entrepreneurial minded and want to think more long term, there are certain independent firms that can offer a relatively minor upfront forgivable note, maybe in the 30 to 50% of trailing 12 range. And some advisors might look at that as a replacement strategy. But the bigger thing is whether there's upfront cash or not, when someone's going independent, the advisor is going to go independent because they believe the much higher payout over a period of time, plus all the additional freedom they're going to pick up is going to more than make up for their deferred comp. And all of that can still be said for someone who has time left on a note. Depending upon how much money is left on a note, it may or may not be feasible to leave. But when you have time left on a note or a significant deferred comp balance, it means that the bar to leave is that much higher. And someone's going to have to be more unhappy with balance left on a note before free agency than someone who already has had their note forgiven or who wasn't on a note to begin with. Yeah, I think that, you know, those are really good points because what I was going to say is we know we've worked with many advisors who have chosen to walk away from a significant amount of unvested deferred comp. Certainly, it's not that it's a non-issue or that they don't care about it, but it all comes down to just how unhappy they are, how limited they might feel, and how excited they are by the possibility of moving elsewhere. And we talk a lot sometimes about the topic of shrink to grow, that sometimes you've got to take a step backward in order to take a step forward. And again, that's an inside job. But let me jump to another question, which I think we hear a lot, and it's how an advisor determines if his book is portable. Because obviously, you wouldn't walk away from a dime of unvested deferred comp. You wouldn't want to pay back a dime on a note if, in fact, you didn't believe that that book is portable. And I guess the follow-up question, Lewis, is what is typical portability after an advisor moves? Yeah, so determining what's portable in a book is one of the first things an advisor should do. Because even if they are extremely unhappy, if all or most of their clients either aren't going to move with them or can't because of the makeup of the book, it's going to be difficult to make that decision. So we help guide advisors through this. And really any firm or model that an advisor might consider will have their own um, distinct process. 
But at a high level, the things to look at to gauge how portable your book is are a couple of different product categories. The first is alternative investments. If you have clients in proprietary feeder funds, those aren't going to be portable until that fund or strategy seeks liquidity. And that's pretty much a certainty. The second part is separately managed accounts or SMAs. No two SMA platforms are the same. Even if you went Morgan Stanley to UBS, they're not going to be the same. So getting the hiring manager or a biz dev person at a custodian or someone like us, your list of managers, strategies, and also how much in assets you have with each of those is really important just to see that there is a one-to-one match. Usually that's not 100% perfect. And so in that case, a firm will either look to add a manager to the platform in advance of the transition or will suggest a replacement if they're not able to add it to the platform. The third area of portability I would call attention to is your loan book. So mortgages are likely to stay at your current firm unless you think it's in your client's best interest to refinance. But securities-backed lending or LMA for Merrill advisors, you need to get those rates and terms over to a new firm or a new custodian because their goal will be to meet or beat the existing rate. So I think those are the three kind of product areas that you should look at. Other things might be how much in trust assets do you have and how do you kind of dislodge those assets from a trust company? Certainly, if you have institutional business, seeing if those clients are going to have to go out for RFP is another area. So that's more on the product side. And then more on just the relationship side. Only you as the advisor are going to know how sticky your relationships are. And if you don't believe your clients are with you for you, then you probably shouldn't move. Another area would be clients who have been inherited by advisors moving or ones that have been referred by either a bank or maybe through like a stock option plan. Those tend to be a little bit stickier to the bank. Um, So all of that goes into an advisor's mental calculation of portability. So there's the actual upfront work that you can do to make sure everything maps over and there's no surprises. But then there's also just the subjective part and kind of gauging or ranking how strong you feel about the portability of your business. Are there any statistics about what typical portability looks like when an advisor moves? Yeah, so I'll give you a stat that I've heard and also just anecdotally from teams we've worked with. I think first and foremost, we see that the transitions that are the most successful, that have the best portability, it's really channel or firm agnostic. It's much more about how prepared the advisor or the team is. Um, How thorough were they in their diligence process? How much upfront work did they do to make sure that everything in the book can map over? And also, how careful were they in making sure that they're actually going to a firm that's better for their clients and that there's tangible things they can do better for the individuals that have trusted them? So those moves tend to be better. And we see moves that are ridiculously successful, some moves that even have 100% plus portability within three to four months. Maybe an advisor went independent and now can bill on assets that are held away, or a client just feels more comfortable with giving them more wallet share once they're business owners. We've also seen transitions that aren't as successful. And sometimes it's a surprise, but usually the ones that aren't as successful, there's a reason that that, that was known beforehand. I would say for us, especially with more quality teams, we normally expect anywhere from 85 to 95% asset portability within two to four months. Of course, again, there's outliers. I know Charles Schwab puts out a study that's fantastic called their sophomore survey. And I believe I've seen in that that 87% was the asset portability number in one of the recent studies 
for um, second year RIA firms that left the wirehouse. And obviously assets is one way to look at it. Um, you can also look at it as a percentage of revenue or number of relationships. But I think overall, I would say expect 85 to 90% of clients or of assets to move over. And if you do your homework and you're extra prepared, you can you can find yourself in the higher end of that range. Yeah, I think that's great. I would agree with that totally. And I think the key is 85 to 90% or closer to 100% of the assets an advisor wants to move. Sometimes advisors move and choose to leave assets behind, and that's a personal decision. Let me shift gears a little bit, Lewis. I want to focus on two questions that we get asked a lot these days. So the big firms are working hard to tie advisors up via their retire in place or sunset programs. And that is an option, obviously, for senior advisors that are within a certain amount of time from retirement. But it also has an impact on the next gen advisor, the next gen inheritor. So I'll take the first question, speaking to the senior advisor, the one that might be close to retirement, and I'll ask you a question speaking to the next-gen inheritor, if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay. So question one, talking to senior advisors. My firm is encouraging me to sign on to its retire-in-place program. Should I take it? What might other options be to consider? Okay. So what we're talking about here are Merrill Lynch's CTP, UBS's Alpha, Morgan Stanley's FAP, and just about every major firm has a retire-in-place program. They are a wonderful way for big firms to prevent attrition. They are an equally wonderful way for a senior advisor to monetize his or her business in place without having to go through the disruption of making a move. That is an enormous positive. And when the firms came out with these programs, it was a major boon, again, for allowing advisors to monetize without feeling like they had to jump ship in order to do so. But very often, senior advisors, and probably more often today than we've seen in the past, senior advisors have begun to feel a certain amount of discontent, especially when the, their next gen is a family member a child, someone that they really care about, and they worry whether or not the legacy for their clients and for their next generation is right at their current firm. Said another way, will what got them, the senior advisor here, will that be the same entrepreneurial culture and freedom and level of enjoyment that their child or the next generation will enjoy? So the other option some of these folks might consider is a strategy we called move once and monetize twice, the notion of jumping from Merrill to Morgan or Morgan to UBS or something of the like, where an advisor gets paid a transition package, a significant one to move, and then retires through the new firm's retire in place program. So hence monetizing twice. The other option is to go independent. And if that senior advisor has what I would say is at least five to seven year runway, the crossover can be significant where what you're giving up in upfront money and short-term upside, you're making up for in the ability to build equity, build a legacy, build enterprise value, and hopefully have a business at the end of the day that's worth many multiples of what it would be if you jumped from one major firm to the other. So I don't know if there's anything you want to add about senior advisors, Lewis, but I'd love to pivot 
to the next gen advisors. Is that okay? Yeah, I'll just add two quick points. The first is it's always easier to stay put. And especially if an advisor is close to retirement, they're probably looking to simplify their life. So that advisor, similar to the one that's on a forgivable loan or has a mega deferred comp balance, has a really, really high bar to say, you know what, this isn't the right place and we should leave. And we empathize with that because it's repapering and it's a lot of work. The other thing I'll say is on the independent side, we've seen and we've helped craft customized versions of a sunset program for senior advisors. Part of it is the higher payout over a period of time, but it's also being able to completely customize what your retirement looks like. So to be able to do so also at tax preferred treatment, so to make it cap gains instead of ordinary income tax, and to decide exactly how and when you want to retire. So we've seen some some folks that want to work with a couple of clients and that works for them. Others stay on as a chairman or some sort of figurehead. Some say, I want to work part-time for 10 years. Others say, I want to be out in two years. And there's really no limit to how you can structure it. It's more just a matter of making sure you have the right next generation in place, and then the sky's the limit. So I think that's a good pivot point is it it all comes down to how confident you are in your next generation. So shifting gears now, speaking to the next gen advisors, a question for you, Lewis. My partner is close to retirement and considering signing on to our firm's retire in place program. How might his or her decision about succession planning impact my future? Yeah, so it's a we're seeing this more and more as these sunset programs become more and more popular. And as the advisor population overall gets closer to wanting to retire, if you're a next generation inheritor, first off, good for you, because most advisors, their goal is to inherit or acquire books of business. And it's not easy. There's a lot of competition. And especially if you found one that's of quality and that matches your own personal view of the business, then it's fantastic. The downside is, and why might someone either forego the opportunity to inherit a book of business or just what do they have to keep in mind if they are going to sign the dotted line and become a successor is that these programs are crafted to retain assets and to retain advisors, both the inheriting advisor and the retiring advisor. So you should expect that you're committing yourself to whatever your firm is for a minimum of five years, sometimes up to seven years. Nothing wrong with that if you feel like you're in the absolute right spot And if you believe you can make peace with whatever changes your firm throws your way over the next number of years, it is possible to leave while under one of these deals. It just becomes very expensive. You also should get a legal consultation because there might be things like enhanced non-solicitation clauses or even some additional legal penalties for leaving. So that's really what you have to think about if you're an inheritor is how badly do you want it and how certain are you that you're in the right spot? if you're not so certain it's the right fit, and more importantly, you really are questioning whether you're at the right firm, you might consider foregoing the succession deal or having a a conversation with your senior partner to see if they would be amenable to changing firms or going independent. Yeah. In fact, you and I have written and spoken a lot about how we believe one of the greatest trends of 2020 and continuing to 2021 is the power impact that this younger generation or the next gen inheritors will have in impacting or influencing where their senior advisors choose to retire or spend the rest of their career. 
I completely agree with that. And we are going to see that trend uh, be magnified this year. Absolutely. So I'll take asking this question because it's one that I think you're the perfect person to, um, to ask. So where are most advisors going when they do move? Is there one firm that's dominating the recruitment wars or is it really more scattered these days? Mm. Great question. And we get asked that all the time. A lot of times it comes in the form of, look, you know my business mix. Where do you think I belong? Where's the one firm or what's the most popular firm? And look, I've been in this business, it's almost a quarter of a century already. And one of the biggest things that has changed is that what used to be a binary choice, meaning a top team would either stay in place at their current firm or move to a like firm. So from Merrill Lynch to Morgan Stanley or UBS to Wells Fargo or from Raymond James to Stiefel Nicholas. But there wasn't a whole lot of other kind of movement. And the alternative to that, the binary part, was just to sort of stay put by default because they may have found that a like move was nothing more than a lateral. It didn't move the needle enough. But the greatest change in the last decade is the optionality that has been born, how much the waterfall of possibilities has expanded. And so where people are going today has become really fractured and is determined only by how that advisor wants to live his or her business life. Are they entrepreneurial? Do they want to be independent? And if independent, do they want supported independence or do they want to build everything from scratch? There is this whole amazing category that we've talked a lot about is the boutique firms, but it's the new boutique firms. So boutique firms that used to be Credit Suisse and Lehman and Deutsche Bank and Barclays, left when they went away, they left a gaping hole in the industry landscape. They were a solid alternative for high net worth focused, sophisticated teams. But then for a while, they went away. They have been replaced by probably two of the most popular models, which is the new boutique firm. So First Republic and Rockefeller are absolutely crushing it. And I don't think anybody listening to this would find that a surprise. And then there are still plenty of advisors moving within the wirehouse channel. And then you've got the regional firms that have really seen the disenfranchisement or a lot of the frustration that wirehouse advisors are feeling, seen it as an opportunity to really capture top talent. And so regional firms that used to be seen as nothing more than also rants, you know, their technology was a little less than, their leadership a little less than, the community of advisors a little less than, have really leveled the playing field. And so their deals, their platforms, their infrastructure, the people that they're recruiting are absolutely as good, if not better, in some cases in the wirehouses. And you and I, in the last couple of months, have moved several mega million dollar teams in and around the wirehouse world, from UBS to Morgan Stanley, from Merrill Lynch to Wells Fargo, et cetera. So lots of movement. And the short answer is where they're going is much more fractured and there is no one exact popular destination. But it raises a question that I think you're a good person to answer, Lewis, and that's, so when people are moving, now that several options, and most importantly or specifically Morgan Stanley and UBS chose to pull out of the broker protocol, what is the difference then or what is the impact of moving in a non-protocol status versus a protocol status? Yeah, great question. I feel like we took a, a two-year hiatus from talking about this one every waking day when UBS and Morgan Stanley infamously removed themselves from the protocol for broker recruiting. 
because now it's somewhat business as usual. So the protocol, which was started in 2004, and we've recorded a number of episodes on it, basically makes it so that an advisor who goes from one protocol member firm to another is able to solicit their clients, not pre-solicit, but solicit after they resign, and also take a protocol list, which is five pieces of personal information about their clients. So it makes it easier. It makes it so there's a little bit less risk on a move, and an advisor can have a little bit of a head start in getting rolling once they move. So when UBS and Morgan pulled out of the protocol, what it did was overnight uh, made it so that any advisor going to those firms or leaving those firms could no longer solicit clients and now couldn't take the protocol list. But still, there's been a ton of movement to and from those firms and forever Companies like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Private Bank and BNY Mellon and Bernstein and Newberger Berman, et cetera, et cetera, tons of RIAs were never part of the protocol to begin with. And certainly before 2004, every move was non-protocol. So what's happened now is the industry has a playbook. Attorneys that specialize in the space have done a ton of successful moves in it. Every firm that you might consider is well-prepared to receive non-protocol teams. So if you're an advisor at Merrill or Wells Fargo that are still part of protocol, consider yourself lucky. But if you're at UBS or Morgan Stanley, you're definitely not stuck. Your resignation process is just a little bit different. You have to be a little bit more motivated to move. And if you're going independent, there is some additional risk. But as long as you follow the advice of an attorney, there's no reason to think you're going to get sued. The burden of proof for a TRO or any sort of legal action is on the firm. And you have to give them tangible proof that you either violated the terms of your non-solicitation or took confidential client information. And you know, you mentioned Merrill and Wells. You're saying you're lucky. What's your thought? Do you think that either one of those will pull out of protocol too? It seems like if they were going to, they would have already. Merrill hasn't recruited really, um, almost at all. So you would think their window for pulling out has kind of come and gone. They should have done it if they were number maybe a year or two ago when their biggest competition also pulled out. And I think with Wells Fargo, they've been really hungry to recruit. And if you're really hungry to recruit, there's less reason to to withdraw from it. So who knows? I don't have a crystal ball, but it seems like the time's passed where both of those firms would consider pulling themselves out of the accord. So in talking about what firms are protocol or non-protocol, certainly all of the regional firms are members of the protocol. Most independent broker-dealers are members of the protocol, and RIAs either sign up for the protocol for purposes of recruiting or are already members of it. So on the topic of those three types of firms, the question I have for you is, if I'm a wirehouse advisor, I might say that a regional firm, a broker-dealer, or an RIA, they may not have the same name recognition or cachet that a big wirehouse does. And a really important question we get is how my clients will feel about moving to a firm that doesn't have the same brand. What would you say to that? Yeah, well, I think it's a valid question. And the truth of the matter is only the advisor knows or the advisor is the one to best assess their client's sensibilities. So only an advisor can really know at the end of the day how their clients would feel. But I know a couple of things are true. Every advisor we have worked with that has moved away from a big brand firm, either to launch their own firm that has no brand recognition or to a firm, any firm, regional firm or otherwise with lesser brand recognition, certainly worries about that. It's a good question. The truth of the matter is that 
the world has really changed. And in that change, clients have become much more aware. The term fiduciary or the advisor being held to the fiduciary standard and always making decision in the client's best interest is has become really a mainstream concept. And so what clients, more than anything, what advisors who have moved have told us is that as long as they can make a strong case, a decision to move elsewhere is being made in the client's best interest to do no harm to the client, in fact, being made to better the services or deliverables that a client can expect, clients will follow. And back to the point Lewis made earlier about portability. The number one determinant of portability is about trusted, deep relationships. That's really what it's about. So the anecdotally speaking, in almost every move we've made, whether an advisor's move from one big brand name to another or from a brand name to go launch his own firm and start Bob Smith Wealth Management, the ability to be successful and to move clients has everything to do with that trusted relationship and being able to make a case that the move is being made for the benefit of the clients. If you can check both of those boxes, we find that brand name matters less. It's about services and deliverable and trust and not so much brand name. Yeah. And and what I would add to that on more of the tangible side is number one, post-financial crisis, many advisors wanted to distance themselves from the traditional Wall Street institutions, which is one of the reasons the regional firms, the Raymond Jameses and Stiefels of the world, have been absolutely crushing it on the recruiting side, where advisors feel like they want to be at a firm that doesn't have headline risk and that kind of stays out of the way, allows the advisor to promote their brand over the brand of the firm. The second part of it is when advisors go independent, sometimes there's a fear, my clients aren't going to know Lewis Diamond Wealth Management. Well, it's probably true. Obviously, as Mindy said, the trust is with you and the brand that you're going to build, but they can also leverage the brand name of the custodian or custodians where they custody assets. So it's your clients are definitely going to know who Charles Schwab or Fidelity Investments or BNY Mellon Pershing and probably soon Goldman Sachs are. And you can feel free to leverage that to give your clients comfort that their assets are safe and that they are protected in the event of some sort of misstep by their advisor. And then on on that note too, this past year was surprisingly one of the strongest years for advisor growth in the industry. Markets hit an all-time high and seemed to keep going up. And plenty of advisors used the pandemic as an opportunity to cement the relationships with their clients and also pick up new relationships from advisors who may not have been paying as much attention to a client's needs as they should have. So that brings us to the question of, what if an advisor says, I'm growing like crazy, it's my best year ever, growing by double digits and blowing the doors off? Why would I leave now? Yeah, well, the answer is, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't. The answer to me is, Yes, it's about, yes, you know, rear view mirror, you've had your best year ever. If you believe that you can get to a billion or your next billion or to whatever your growth goal is, best by staying put, then that's what you should do. Because staying put is least disruptive, the path of least resistance, and the easiest thing to do. People choose to move when they look out at this expanded waterfall of options and they say, Perhaps there's a way for me to accelerate that growth. Yes, I had great growth. Yes, I have wonderful relationships with clients. Is there a way for me to take that on the road to go elsewhere and grow even faster? 
or and fill in the blank. The goal may not only be about growth. It may be about adding, will I have an easier time expanding my team? Will I have an easier time building enterprise value? It could be whatever the goal is. But the real question is, do I believe that I can get it done, whatever it is, best by staying put or moving? And no one acknowledges more than us that the path of least resistance is to stay put. So we don't think anybody should move unless there's really strong reason to do so. Couldn't agree more. There's a lot of reasons that people move. So, Lewis, I'd love to ask you, you know, we talk about people growing like crazy. Many advisors have reported that they've had their best year yet or at least close to it. So let me ask you one for our final question. I'm considering a move. Am I better off partnering with another team or going solo? Yeah, the, the age old question. And the other extension of that question that I'll hit on is, should I become a package deal? So if I'm going to move and I'm making it up a $3 million team, should we consider banding together with the $3 million, another $3 million team so now we look bigger in the eyes of a firm and presumably have more leverage and maybe get a better deal? And I'll hit on both of those. So surprisingly, from, from our standpoint, we would say that bigger isn't always better. It's almost always better to focus on your own needs and the needs of your clients. Because as you add in more stakeholders, more voices, or more cooks in the kitchen, if you will, it becomes much more complex. And the likelihood is you are going to have to either sacrifice where you're going to go, or sometimes you just hit an impasse where you may be motivated to leave, but because there's just a stalemate as to what the best move is, nothing happens. So we would say if you are completely aligned philosophically, goals-wise, everything, with either another team that you think there's some synergy with or with another group who you may want to band together with, then by all means, go for it. But depending upon the size of a book, you're probably going to get the best deal a firm has to offer anyway. So in the example of my $3 million team, they're going to get the best deal a firm has to offer. And whether it's three or six million probably doesn't make much of a difference. Where it matters is if you're a solo advisor or you feel like you want to be part of a team in order to be successful or forming a partnership with another group, you have complementary skill sets. That's a little bit different because that's a strategic business decision. So in summary, I would say focus on yourself and your own goals first. And if they happen to align with another team or another professional that you might want to do the same thing together, by all means, go for it. So what would be a, a negative about what could possibly go wrong if two teams were to come together, two previously unaligned teams were to choose to move together. Yeah. So anytime there's a move, there's extra stress. Um, it's you're learning new systems. It's a transition. It's paperwork. It's a ton of work. So two teams that weren't together before, you all of a sudden bring them together in a transition and it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. You're either going to find out really quickly that you're ideal partners and you make yourselves better or it's just going to completely fray. And then you have to deal with the messy divorce. Yeah, it makes sense. It's so funny. We just picked 10 of these, but I realized the more questions we ask, we could probably have come up with 200 of them. And so what we've tried to do here is to answer the most frequently asked questions we hear from advisors. But the truth be told, there are as many questions to ask as there are advisors who ask them. 
The reality is that no question is a silly one when you're talking about making a life-changing career decision. And at the end of the day, it's our belief that as long as you are asking questions and making decisions that are rooted in doing what's best for your clients, it's hard to imagine going wrong. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And be sure to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts. It will help let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.